before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to the truth prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. The whole function of the ego, according to yoga philosophy, is to bring forth this idea of a separate self, to create an individual identity. And that identity sees itself as separate from the source. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, we are back. Welcome back. Another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. Today I have the honor of interviewing Ellen Grace O'Brien. Hi, Ellen. How are you? Hi, I'm great. And thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm really delighted. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So Ellen, well, she's in Santa Cruz, California right now, but her Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, where she works, is in San Jose. Ellen is a Yogacharya, which is a Another word for master yoga teacher. She's been doing that for 30 years. And she teaches a special kind of yoga called Kriya Yoga, which we will get into. In addition to her many publications, she's the host of her weekly podcast, The Yoga Hour. And she's the founder of Carry the Vision, which is a great organization that brings meditation and instruction to children in both schools and prisons. Her most recent book was called The Jewel of Abundance, Finding Prosperity Through Ancient Wisdom of Yoga. <laughs> so, Ellen, how are you? I'm great. And uh, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, most people don't put those two together. I mean, maybe yoga and really nice abs, <laughs> but, <laughs> but somehow not yoga and prosperity. So it, it'll be nice to unpack that one. It will. And also, I really like, I don't know who, who came up with the title, but The Jewel of Abundance is a really nice title, really very visual and I don't think those words are put together that often either, jewel and abundance. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, that title comes from um, Vedic scripture, thousands of years old. And so I didn't make it up. And, you know, sometimes things are just so good, you can't make it up. And that's where it came from. It came from a verse out of the Yoga Sutra, which is a classical instruction manual for people on the path of meditation and spiritual realization. Okay, fantastic. All right. We're going to take a journey into your life right now before we get into the book. For my old listeners, they know this, but for anyone listening for the first time, just to give you the premise for the show, that the truth prescription is basically that we as human beings, we ignore truth. And because we ignore truth, we often find ourselves stumbling on the same stumbling block over and over and over again. It isn't until we accept the truth, whatever that truth is, whatever that particular truth, that we're able to find the freedom 
and the ability to move past those barriers and move on to success. Ellen, can you tell us in your life, either we can start with a, we'll do a, a personal for you, either in your personal life, when there was a time when you were ignoring some truth that when you accepted it, things opened up for you? Oh, absolutely. That's such a good question. And it's really a wonderful thing for us to ponder. (laughs) So for me, you know, I look back into that question of, you know, what propelled me onto the spiritual path. And that was a feeling of discontent. You know, it was one of those things where when I looked outwardly, you know, I had come to a place, I was a young adult, you know, I was just a young woman, I just 29 years old, but I was, you know, married, I had kids, had a nice home, had work, you know, all those things, right? I wasn't suffering, wasn't deprived, but I was so unhappy. And it wasn't anything that I could pinpoint. It was just kind of this pervasive sense of something's missing in my life. And so that propelled me to a deeper kind of seeking, you know, like, well, what is it? You know, what is it that I I want? And that was actually the lie. You know, the lie was something is missing <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, what what was actually missing was myself and the self, the soul, the, the spirit, you know, what we are cannot really go missing, but our connection to that, our ability to connect to that, to know that, to know that truth can be missing. And so, When I went in search of, you know, in a sense, what was missing, I I discovered it was my connection to myself. When I discovered that, you know, that was discovering the truth of my being, you know, that, you know, I'm here to, to live a spiritual life and to thrive and to fulfill my potential. And that made all the difference was discovering that truth, which was always there about what I am. I just didn't know how to find it. Right. And you went on a journey to find it. (laughs) I did. I did. And it's a journey, you know, some people say from your head to your heart. (laughs) Sometimes it's a very long journey from your head to your heart. Yeah, I think for more than others. It's interesting. I remember reading something in one of the one of my texts that said that a lot of times people who are educated often it's a lot more difficult for them to be spiritual because they have so many things, ideas, concepts in their brain, in their mind. Whereas someone who's like maybe a simple village person and lives in the middle of Papua New Guinea, it would be it would be a lot easier for them to actually find purpose because they don't they don't have all of these other things clogging their mind. So it's it's that it's interesting. It's interesting. We're gonna I think we'll get into it. Okay, so that was your that was your personal. What about your professional? You know, there's a not lot not a lot online about your life before you took on the training and became became a teacher, became a yoga teacher. So I don't know if you want to talk about that former that former professional life or your current professional life as the the, the director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's really not a lot that happened before. <laughs> you know, I, I was a young woman searching, you know, as married, had kids, you know, worked as an artist. Once I discovered my path, this path of Kriya Yoga, which is, is the path of yoga for self and God realization that was brought to the United States from India by Paramahansa Yogananda in 1920. Many people are familiar with Yogananda because of his book, The Autobiography of Yogi. So getting into my service role, you know, in the center of just, you know, being willing to 
be an instrument for creating a space, you know, for other people to find that teaching, that truth that I found. That was my path of transformation because any idea that I had about my own lack, my own self-doubt, you know, any of that really had to go in order for that work to thrive, right? If I was going to be the instrument of it, then I, I needed to be honed as an instrument. And that was a good thing. You know, it was a path of transformation for me. But out of that, I would say, you know, if I could pull one thing out of that story, I would say, and this is, you know, what my book is about, is that life itself is always moving, you know, in the direction of thriving and prospering and fulfilling its purpose. There's just this vast creative energy in life. And when we sign up for that, <laughs> you know, we have to become willing to thrive and willing to grow. And so that was my main thing. Submission. Yeah, it was like surrender and willingness. I mean, who would think, you know, that we're not willing to be all that we can be? <laughs> well, there's a lot of there's a lot of internal sabotage that goes on for sure. Well, totally. But I didn't know that. I had to discover it along the way because, you know, what I've come to see is if we're really willing to have what we say we want and what we know is right for us, you know, in our in our worthy goals in life then we'd already have it. <laughs> you know, it would already be there. We'd already be manifesting it. But sometimes we have to look at, well, why isn't it here yet? And, you know, that's really fruitful work. So that's what I had to do. Well, speaking of Kriya Yoga, let's jump into some questions. So you, your master teacher, Roy Eugene Davis, trained you and you studied under him and you were ordained, I think, and it was 1982, correct? That's correct. Tell my listeners, what is Kriya Yoga? How is it different from the sort of traditional Hatha Yoga that's in all, the, all of these, you know, pop-up stores all over the country? <laughs> and sort of how could people benefit from it? Well, Kriya Yoga is a um, path of classical yoga. And, you know, as you say, we, we have, you know, so many yoga centers in the U.S. today, like like coffee shops, you know, they're, <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're everywhere. Have your, have your coffee and have your postures. But <laughs> Hatha yoga is a is a very small part of the full philosophy of yoga itself, you know. And really, hatha yoga is supposed to prepare you for meditation, you know, in the classical sense. It's one little part of it. But, you know, in the U.S., we've just extracted it largely for its physical benefit rather than its metaphysical benefit. <laughs> I didn't realize that, that its actual purpose was to prepare you to, to meditate. That's right. Yeah. And it does, you know, help you calm your mind. You know, some people feel so good when they go to a yoga class, they come out, they feel radiant, they feel balanced. And, and it, you know, helps, of course, to, you know, contributes to a healthy body. So your body isn't distracting you from meditation. But, you know, Kriya Yoga comes out of six streams of classical Indian philosophies, and yoga is, is one of those. And it's a holistic discipline. And Kriya Yoga, that Kriya is a generic term, you know, so let me kind of unpack that for a minute. So yoga, we just commonly describe it as union or oneness, right? Yoga means to bind back. So this oneness is really a conscious realization of one's essence of being, you know, bringing your attention and awareness to be awake, you know, to that which you are, to be able to experience that directly, bring your body and your mind and your spirit together, right? So that's yoga. Kriya 
is a generic term. So if you look up Kriya Yoga, you, you know, you, you'll be online for a long time. <laughs> yes, I was. And I was confused. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to ask the teacher when I talk to her because this is not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there are so many branches. And so it's a generic term and Kriya means action. So if you put those two terms together, Kriya and yoga, it means those those actions which are supportive of and conducive to this higher state of consciousness. So you look at the generic sense of what Kriya yoga is, and then you have to look at, well, they're all different ways of expressing what Kriya Yoga is. So you look at the particular lineage or tradition. So as you mentioned, you know, my teacher is an American yogi, Roy Eugene Davis, practitioner of yoga for many, many years. And he met Paramahansa Yogananda in 1949, when Mr. Davis was, at that time, he was 18 years old. <laughs> he read that classic story, the autobiography of a yogi. And he, and he was, you know, just get this, I just find it so inspiring. He he was a young man. This was 1949, 18 years old, living in the Midwest on a farm. And he got that book and he recognized this ancient path and he recognized the photograph of Paramahansa Yogananda as his teacher. So he packed his bags, <laughs> didn't have any money, you know, packed some oatmeal and some raisins and <laughs> took a little <laughs> bit of cash. And he and he hitchhiked across the U.S. to meet Yogananda in California. So, you know, because of that courage that he had and his steadfast dedication to the path, then, you know, I was able to find it, you know, many years later in 1979 when I met Mr. Davis, you know, many years after Paramahansa Yogananda had passed from this plane. So that's something to think about, too. You know, what we do, you know, following our path of truth often, and we hope always, you know, ends up being a contribution to somebody else's life as well. Sure. No, absolutely. I'd like you to tell my listeners the Sufi story of the wise fool and how that pertains to our human condition today. <laughs> is is this the one about Nasruddin looking for his keys? Yes, yes. Oh, I love that story. <laughs> so, okay. So there's the Sufi story. It's a classic story, and, and perhaps some of your listeners have heard it before, but it's a story about... Mullah Nasruddin, and he's he's referred to as the wise fool. So <laughs> one one night, Mullah is outside, and he's under a street lamp, and he's kind of crawling around on the ground, digging around, you know, and he's sort of fussing, and you know, he's agitated, and you know, a friend walks up right about that time when he he's just digging around there, and his friend says, you know, Mullah, you know, what are you doing? Nasruddin says, well. I'm out here looking for my keys. So his friend says to him, well, Mullah, you know, where did you last see them? And I always have to pause and say, you know, I love that part of the story because, you know, whenever you've lost your keys, <laughs> you misplaced your keys or anything else, and you're looking like that, you know, you're looking crazy, you're, you're, you're looking in your bag and you look through it and then you look through it again. And then you have that friend, predictably, who comes and says, well, where did you leave them? And, you know, like if we knew where we left them, right, <laughs> they would not be lost, right? So anyway, there's the friend because he said, well, when did you last see them? You know, where did you last see them? And, and Melissa says, in my house. <laughs> and so his friend says, well, Mullah, you know, 
If you last saw them in your house, you know, why are you looking out here under the street lamp? And Melissa says, because the light is better out here. And of course, you know, we always just crack up when we hear that story and, you know, just like how crazy he is to be doing that. But, you know, he's called the wise fool because it's always a story about us, right? You know, it's a metaphysical story and it's about, you know, really, in a sense, it's about the story I told you in the beginning about myself, which was I had lost the key to my own happiness. <laughs> I had lost the key to finding myself. And so the key, you know, that that we need, the key to our happiness, the key to our fulfillment, the key to our creativity is actually in our own house. It's in our own consciousness. But, you know, we get all involved in looking outside for it. You know, we're looking in a relationship, we're looking in a job, you know, we're looking online, (laughs) we're we're looking. And why, you know, if it's in our own house, why do we look out there? Because we're conditioned to look outside of ourselves. And most of us, like me, don't know how to look inside. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I'll tell you a quick story and also a quick story to our listeners. Probably about 15 years ago, I was mentoring this young man. Part of his sort of training was he had to come visit me. I was living in Cleveland at the time. And I took him out to this park and I told him it was a bit large park. And I said, in this park, there's a, a golden rock somewhere that you have to find. And over the next hour, I just watched him walk around and get frustrated and flustered. He couldn't find it. He, you know, he was walking, 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 walking. And he came back and sat down next to me and he's like, you know, at wit's end. And I slipped my hand in his pocket and pulled the rock out. I had put the rock there the night before, but it was to illustrate the same point that anything you're searching for, the answer is usually inside of you. So (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful story. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, you talk about this concept. I think I heard it on your podcast about the illusion of separateness. And I'd like you to describe it. And just talk about how can one attain it? And then how long did it take you to attain it through practice? Well, the illusion of separateness is painful. (laughs) (laughs) It's painful. And that's how we can identify that we're in that consciousness. You know, when we're life feels like a burden and we're suffering or we're worried, usually we can trace that back to what in psychological terms would be the ego-based self, the ego-based mind. The whole function of the ego, according to yoga philosophy, is to bring forth this idea of a separate self, to create an individual identity, and that identity sees itself as separate from the source. You know, like, I am the owner of experience, I am the doer, and, and so on, instead of understanding oneself as an expression of the larger true life, you know, as connected to everyone and to everything and connected to the divine reality, to absolute reality, whatever name you use for it. So the cure for that error in our thinking, which the yogis call the great error, you know, is is not knowing the truth of what you are, thinking you're this, you know, little separate self cut off, (laughs) cut off (laughs) the source. And that gives rise to all kinds of other problems because, you know, then we're always trying to prop up this separate self, you know, through, through what we want, what we don't want, through what we like, what we don't like. We're always defining ourselves, right? 
So, you know, the great cure for that is the direct experience of the truth of our being, you know. So on the path of yoga, you know, we say first you learn about it, you know, first you you get the map of the territory, like, okay, there's one reality called by many names, and that reality is expressing as everything that is, including you. So if you if you think of that reality as omnipresent, if you can buy that, if that sounds good to you, you can't be separate from it. If that is everywhere, there's no getting away from it. There's no separating out from it. There's no apart from it because it is all that is and it's everywhere. So so first you you get knowledge of it like a map. You you discern that like, okay, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> right. Intellectual understanding, right? Intellectual understanding. And then you begin to have intuitive understanding of it. Like you kind of you know, beyond thinking about it, you kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I can sense that I can feel that I can, I can know that. But then the the third step is really to have a direct experience of it. And that experience is, is most easily found in meditation, when the mind becomes quiet. So you're not coming upon this insight through thought. It's, it's not built by logic. It's a direct experience that's beyond words and thoughts. So with regard to your question about how, how long does it take and how long did it take me, it doesn't take long at all to have that insight and to have that direct experience if you're practicing meditation in a systematic way. It doesn't take long at all. You know, living it takes longer. Right. <laughs> I think that's really what my question was. You know, you can be in the middle of, of Whole Foods and, and be in that place. That's That takes a lot of practice and a lot of time. You know, because once you realize that truth, then you begin to align your thinking with it. You begin to align your speech with it. You begin to align your actions with it. And as you continue with your spiritual practice, you know, the mental field gets clearer with time and you become, you know, less reactive. Those, those old patterns and those bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Bad ideas. <laughs> That's funny. You stop, you stop, you know. You stop acting out of those bad ideas. Sure, sure. Okay. My last question, tell us about your most recent book. Again, we'll say the title, The Jewel of Abundance, and how folk can benefit from the teachings in the book. This book comes together from many, many years of practice for me, but it's really a deep dive into the philosophy and practices of yoga and meditation. And by that, I mean yoga philosophy. Like, what are the underlying metaphysical principles of how to prosper? And when we look into the ancient teachings of yoga philosophy, we, we find that there. And if I could distill it down for you in this moment to kind of tell you, you know, well, what's the primary takeaway from the book? You know, the primary takeaway is to wake up to the truth of what we are. And it's a very practical manual for how to do that you know, like what the map is, and then how you begin to change your mind, you know, from lack to abundance, you know, how you begin to live. I like to say this wild thing, Dr. Gathers, I like to say, we all can, and I believe must really live in a way that's worthy of us. And, you know, sometimes that worthy, you know, it's a charged word. Very charged, very charged. <laughs> yeah, that's why I like <laughs> it. That's why I like it. <laughs> like Supercharged. <laughs> because 
once you know the truth, you know, that you are a spiritual being, you know, you're a divine emanation of divinity, then you, you want to live in the highest way because you're a child of God, right? So that's what I mean by live in a way that's worthy of you, not in a judgmental way. I mean, in a way that you let yourself shine. Yeah. I think the other thing, when you say knowing your true self, I think we just need to make the distinction the difference between knowledge and wisdom or knowing, you know, with your mind and actually living something. You talked about it earlier, but it's like you get the map, you get the intellectual understanding, but then over time, you start to feel these things. You start to know these things from a deeper place than your brain. Exactly. The path that I'm talking about in this book is developing a path of self-referral. And by self, I don't mean the small self. I don't mean the ego self. I mean the higher true self, or you could say soul. Learning how to live from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Okay, beautiful. Actually, I wanted to ask you this. This is, I didn't write this question down, but what is your understanding of the difference between the spirit and the soul? For me in, in language and semantics, I usually refer to spirit as that which is, you know, omnipresent, all in all, the greater life of of all, and the soul as an individualized expression of that reality. But according to yoga, at the core of our being, there is no distinction. You know, we are that. That's the ancient maxim of of yoga. We we are that, with a capital T. We are spirit. You know, when we say we are spiritual beings, we're basically affirming that we are that. Right. Yeah, they say as above, so below. All right. Let's jump into yes or BS. Or for you, the the teacher, yogi teacher, just be yes or no. <laughs> I love that. Okay. I don't I don't I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mess up, you know. <laughs> All right. Number 1. Internal abundance can translate to external abundance. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, it does all the time. You know, there is a relationship between our thoughts and our experience. What we're willing to see and and experience and you know how we interpret life all right number two one's religious beliefs can alter their spiritual development yes (laughs) yes okay i think that's true again it, it really comes down to you're talking about beliefs yes so you're you're muslim you're hindu you're christian do those things depending on what you believe in from a religious standpoint, can they alter or affect positively or negatively, you know, your spiritual development? Yes. And I don't think it's necessarily the path itself, but what we believe about it that can make a tremendous difference of how we experience our life. So I like to clarify and say that I think in in all the religions, people can thrive and prosper and find their way home. (laughs) That's what they're designed for. (laughs) Right. But in all the religions, it's also possible for people to get lost. It just depends on how people interpret those teachings and how they use them and, you know, whether they narrow the mind or whether they help the person go beyond the level of belief into direct knowing. That's a great thing you just said about how they interpret the teaching, because 
you have the the teaching, if the Torah, the Quran, the Bible, all these books, right? They have very specific things in it, and then then man goes and kind of does what they want to do. It's true. It's true. And and in every religious tradition, you will find people who will be dogmatic about their beliefs and have a narrow interpretation of their scriptures. And that's where we find, you know, the arguments of, you know, my religion is better than yours. My God is better than yours. But those same religions on the farther end or the opposite end of their spectrum, you know, they also have a mystical path of direct realization and of mystical knowledge. It's ineffable. You can't put words to it. So therefore, there's no argument about God because at that point, there's nothing to argue about. You can't put it into words or belief. Right. Okay. Number three. Heaven is, in fact, on earth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We do, I don't think we need to expound. Well, actually, if you want to expound on it, tell us why. Well, in our tradition of Kriya Yoga, there's a saying that was put forth by Mavatar Babaji, who's the first sage that we're aware of in, in our lineage of teachers. And, and he said, few mortals know or realize that the kingdom of heaven extends fully to the earth plane. And it's a beautiful way to think about it. It's really, as I see it, a state of consciousness, a state of awareness. You know, it's not a, it's not a physical place. Agreed. Number four, prayer only works if you believe. I don't know about that. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and that's because I was thinking about how they do have some experiences, some studies that have been done, you know, on even like plants, you know, that plants that are prayed over versus the, you know, the seeds that are not prayed over. And as far as I know, you know, Larry Dossie did some really nice research in, in this. And, you know, they found that those plants would thrive. Now, I don't think the, the plants or the seeds had any belief system about that. And sometimes, you know, they, they find that people who are, you know, in a healing process, you know, those who are prayed for, you know, seem to have better results. So I just don't know about that. Okay. Well, in, in those examples you gave, you were talking more about the people who received the prayer not the people giving the prayer. So I guess what I'm saying is that if I'm praying for someone that's sick and I really believe and feel what I'm saying or, or, or my, the, the intensity of my prayer, that that could be more effective than if I'm just kind of just saying words and not really feeling what I'm saying. I think that's possible you know that okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm still gonna my jury's still out, still of this out? One okay okay that one's down the middle the answer is it depends because again it gets back to you know where are you in charge of the the ultimate outcome you know i hope not um, <laughs> <laughs> oh i see know, i see what I, you're saying i see what you're saying i hope you know that there's a higher power there's a higher order i like the prayer you know that just praying for the highest good to unfold. And I certainly believe in that as opposed to, you know, trying to manipulate other people's lives. I do pray for healing. I do pray for guidance, but I like to stay away from trying to impose my will on a situation. All right. Number five, last one. The mind is our worst enemy. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, and good. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> good. 
Yeah, you know, the, the mind is, is just an, an instrument and, you know, it certainly can, if we allow our, our thoughts to be negative, can certainly work against us. But the mind, you know, as a tool also works for us. And, and the mind is really that, it really is a tool. So, you know, we have the opportunity to change our minds, we can observe our minds, we can change our minds. So it's not really the enemy. Excellent. All right. Well, that's all I've got. Ellen Grace O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell the people how they can get in contact with you and learn more about your teaching and learn more about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment? Thank you so much, Dr. Gathers, for this really great conversation (laughs) and for the opportunity to be on your program with you. And yes, find me. You can find out about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, where meditation yoga is taught every day. And that's in San Jose, California. And that's at CSE, CSE Center, which is all one word, dot org. And there's all kinds of programs going on, classes and retreats and so on. To find more about me at my author site is Ellen Grace O'Brien. And that's O'Brien with an A, O-B-R-I-A-N, ellengraceobrien.com. And on there, there's information, of course, about the book, The Jewel of Abundance. Under events, I'll be traveling all across the U.S. and some international trips this year. So take a look, see if I'll be in your your area. I'll be in New York in May, closer oh, to you. Oh, fantastic. All right. Excellent. <laughs> so that'd be great. And also I have some online courses that you can take a look at. So lots of things happening there. And thank you again for the opportunity. Of course. Is the book on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles? Can they get it anywhere else other than your website? Yes, thank you. It's everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's there and it's there in, you know, paperback. It's on Kindle. It's on Audible. It's it's happening. Yeah, <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> Actually, yeah, your publisher, correct me if I'm wrong, your publisher also published the Eker Toll books, Power of Now. Yes, correct? They yes. Did. Yeah, Power of Now. Yeah, I reference that book often. It's a great, great book. Great book. Yeah, New World, New World Library. They're a great publishing house. They're really dedicated to making a difference in the world. I like them a lot. That actually makes me feel good to hear an author saying they love their publisher, because often that's not the case. (laughs) I know. I have heard that, and I feel, you know, really, really blessed about this. So, yeah, it was great. All right, Ellen. Thank you again. And I'm going to sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it.